Do you remember the first time you went to a movie theater? Because I don't. My parents have said that the first movie they brought me to was the second episode of the first round of the new Star Wars movies. Maybe that experience had an effect on me. Because I remember when I was young. My brother and I would watch Star Wars over and over again, sometimes multiple times a day. And many of these times we would take out our toy lightsabers and go so far as to recreate the choreography of the Jedi that we liked the most. Now, in these movies, I never really considered how music played a part in creating the overall feel of my experience. When I was little, I didn't even really consider that the music was a separate element of the movie. And I would be hard-pressed to find anyone who didn't recognize this. In this way, the movies and the music were one, and when I was 10 or 11, I just saw the film as one whole thing. This points to a collaborative relationship between music and film. In fact, if you really think about it, this example gets really close to Wagner's idea of Gesamtkunstwerk. Yet if we really look at the history that music has had with film, and music was there from its inception, we see a different kind of story. A relationship that was very combative, and one that, quite honestly, has not been completely resolved. On the last episode, we took a look at opera. Specifically, we looked at one work done by Claudio Monteverde that pushed the boundary of music's capabilities beyond a musical meaning and purpose. More importantly, we analyzed a renowned opera by the famous Romantic-era composer Richard Wagner, and it was Wagner who ultimately introduced many of the ideas that would be taken up in the formation of what we now call Western music. Most important to us is his idea of Gesamtkunstwerk, which explains that at some point in our future, there will exist an art form that invites each element that is utilized to be considered and executed within it so that the art form becomes all-encompassing and represents each equally. Sadly, although Wagner was attempting to achieve this with his work in opera, he never believed that he actually succeeded. And this is where we turn to movies. On today's episode, we'll track the history of music and film, consider how it differs from opera in the way that it presents music, and look at one of the prevailing theories that might just be the key to achieving Nürzumskunstwerk. This is Modality. Ironically, our first stop in our discussion of music in film is the silent era. Beginning around the 1890s and lasting until about 1929, these films consisted of no sound at all. That is, except music. During this time, 
there would always be a small ensemble or pianist that played classical pieces while the film rolled. Here, we can clearly see the resemblance to opera, as the ensemble of musicians can be equated to an orchestra pit that can be found in most stage theaters. Indeed, early movies actually directly stemmed from romantic era works done by the likes of Wagner. Even before sound was implemented into the movie-going experience, critics were comparing this form of entertainment with the likes of Wagner and his idea of Gesamtkunstwerk. For even in these silent pictures, the techniques that were being used came directly from late romantic music. For example, Wagner's idea of the leitmotif was prominently used by the orchestra in these times in order to inform the audience. Additionally, film scores that existed in this way perfectly fit with program music's ideology that positions that music's structure necessitates a purpose to describe. Yet, with the advent of talking pictures, or talkies, music was unfortunately sidelined to make room for the emerging art of dialogue. Of particular note is that although most critics maintain that film exudes an opportunity for a unified production, at the time of early film, few understood that the industry has been able to achieve this beyond the realm of image. As such, the world of film scores has been haunted by the circumstances that resulted in the degradation of music. In a sense, talkies push music into the background, which is actually a step back in terms of program music, and ultimately, Duzumskenswerk, because music became a secondary mode of communication, which Wagner's theory does not allow. But before we get too off track, we have to recognize that this development wasn't caused by the content of the dialogue, but came about as a result of what dialogue inherently was. That is, dialogue necessitates a high degree of attention. Like any language, people need to focus in order to understand it. This, as well as the introduction of more complex narrative structures, left film scores in an awkward situation, because they are themselves languages in their own right. So, the film industry at that time felt that one of them needed to be reduced. Like all important business decisions, they based their actions on analyses of their audience. Now, in their analyses, early filmmakers found that audiences would be distracted if the music attempted to be more than just background sound. This identification explains that the historical understanding of film music actually more resembled our past classification of absolute music, which determines that music should exist with a high degree of ambiguity. Therefore, where music as a standalone art form could still be considered according to its programmatic qualities, film music should be appreciated unconsciously by its audience. As such, film composers of that time viewed that film music was, in a sense, incomplete, as it required an interaction with the other facets of the medium to be understood because it was viewed as inherently nondescriptive on its own. Historically, because music was initially of the same importance as the visual elements of film, when it was first introduced to the industry, audiences were simply overwhelmed. And early analyses explained these circumstances as being the result of composers not actually fully understanding music's purpose in film. This consideration led both film composers and directors to create music that only suggested what the visuals explicitly depicted. In this way, music became of a lesser quality, since it no longer maintained a high sense of purpose. 
However, this does not mean that there does not exist opportunities toward a more equal combination of the audio and visual aspects of film. It may well be that in the future of film, we will see a better combination of music, where the visual and musical elements are fused to drive the totality of the feature. And this, honestly, may have already occurred, but that discussion is for another time. For now, it's best to look to the past. One theory that attempts to remedy music's lackluster performance in film was formulated by one Sergei Einstein, an important figure in film score analytics. Specifically, Einstein created the theory of vertical montage. The theory, which arose from early films' attempt to distance themselves from other art forms, argues that the most essential aspect of music in film is to delineate time rather than narrative. As such, it appears that Einstein determined that melody, above all else, is the best way to synchronize the movement of time within film. Now, unlike the traditional understanding of a montage, which is a series of connected shots, vertical montages stay on a singular shot or moment. This allows for a more in-depth and personal understanding of the images that are on screen, as well as invites the audience to also consider the non-visual elements that are present. As such, Einstein positioned that the vertical montage provides film an opportunity to garner music's purpose more fully. And if we consider Einstein's position, music use in film becomes incredibly more important because the variations in tone, pitch, and the melodic structure all become considerations that lend themselves to the harmony and beneficial union of music and film, where music is key to success. Now, it is true that filmmakers during the classical age of cinema placed lesser importance on the musical nature of their films. As such, with the development of talkies, film has moved a step back in terms of achieving Gesamtkunstwerk. This is illustrated in an interview about the process of producing a film score with composer Franz Waxman, who worked during the mid-20th century. In the interview, he disclosed that many composers, himself included, utilized simple cliches that focused attention toward one specific mood. He defends this use, but he also states that some of his music focuses on the internal relationship of certain characters. Here, Waxman unknowingly touches upon the possibility of Gesamtkunstwerk for he expresses that music has a greater purpose than just creating cliches. As has been said, music used in early film closely resembles absolute music, yet Waxman's determination hints at an alternate theory, one that incorporates both absolute and programmatic elements. That is, since film scores were expressly derived from Wagner's works on opera, there are some elements of program music that just can't be removed from the overwhelmingly ambiguous art form. Namely, the technique of the leitmotif remained. In this way, although music in film is predominantly viewed to be best appreciated unconsciously, it has retained some of program music's linguistic character. In such a way, films present music with the ability to use absolute and programmatic elements in conjunction with each other. Furthermore, if we consider the techniques presented by Einstein and his vertical montage theory as well, we are provided with a dictionary of some sort that allows us to consider film scores as a language, a language that, at its core, has the capabilities to represent the totality of a film's expression of mood, theme, 
structure, and message. To note, so far we've considered music according to its construction. Yet the audience's perception of it has only just recently been brought up, but its importance should not be understated. As has been explained, when music was first introduced in early film, audiences were overwhelmed because it was essentially two languages clashing together. As such, music was subdued, and its purpose became one that operated on audiences subconscious. But for many, music as a standalone art form already operates in this way. In a sense, general audiences always viewed music as absolute and ambiguous, even when it is theoretically considered otherwise. Yet the music industry hasn't collapsed, and there continues to be enthusiasm regarding its use. If considered through this lens, filmmakers' decision to place music in the background has merit. As we know, music is a language, one that informs so much about a film. Yet similar to experiences of music by itself, a film score does not need to be understood on such a deep level to be appreciated. If we think back to my experience with Star Wars, some might consider it better that I didn't separate the music from the film. Nevertheless, for audiences, the music of a score presents a shadow of a language that, if understood, gives them a deeper understanding and appreciation of the narrative. Ultimately, it is this higher appreciation that Jesumskinsberg is attempting to achieve. In all that has been said, it is evident that film music stands unique among every other form of musical expression and is distinctively positioned to achieve Wagner's vision of Gesamtsensberg. Additionally, it has the capability of using both program and absolute music harmoniously. But have the theories of the past really informed the present? Does a film score now take on a more important role than simply being background noise? Well, we'll find out on the next episode. Until then, thanks for listening to Modality. <laughs>